Hello, Tin and Duyeb here. Welcome to Future Curious from Nesta, the podcast that predicts the future by talking to those who are creating it. Robot swarms is the sort of idea that you might expect to find in a sci-fi movie pitch, probably involving some sort of hero fighting against them to save humanity. But in reality, it may well be that robot swarms save us from uh, broken pipes or hard-to-reach wiring issues or litter. What I mean is that while it might sound like a fantastical idea, tiny mechanical bees have already been invented and are one of a number of technological innovations that could potentially play a big part in improving the future. But what sort of implications and unintended consequences does such an invention have? Has anyone thought about potential environmental damage? What if the cost overrides the actual usefulness? What if all these armoured insects fall into the wrong hands and an evil genius uses them to ruin picnics forever? This episode is all about the exciting technologies we may well get to see within the next decade and considering the responsibilities that need to accompany them. Oh, and hopefully we'll find out exactly what sort of honey robot swarms would make. Crunchy? Hmm. Joining me to explain all is B. Carol Burks, who's Nesta's co-director for Explorations. Thanks for joining us, B. Why are we dealing with swarms of robots on today's show? Well, Tin, and this week I've been over at the Bristol Robotics Lab to meet Dr. Edmund Hunt and his team of tiny robots. That sounds amazing, but why is Nesta involved with robot swarms? Well, earlier this year, we ran a prize to find the breakthrough ideas that could change society in the next decade. We had lots of entrants from quantum computing to carbon capture, but it was an essay on swarm robotics that took the prize. Right, well, we know you've been to visit the team at Bristol Robotics Laboratory. Let's hear how you got on. I'm standing outside Bristol Robotics Laboratory, a partnership between the University of Bristol and the University of West of England, renowned for its work in advanced intelligence systems, or what you and I might call smart robots. Inside, there are some 300 academics hard at work building the technology that will change the way we live and work. I'm here to meet Dr. Edmund Hunt, a researcher in swarm robotics and winner of Nesta's Tipping Point Prize. So let's head on in. Uh, well, hello there. Um, my name is Edmund Hunt. I'm a research fellow at the University of Bristol in the Department of Engineering Mathematics. Uh, and I've been doing research on swarm robotics uh, here at the Bristol Robotics Laboratory up in the, in the north of Bristol. So we're sitting in Bristol Robotics Laboratory uh, watching about 50 tiny robots the size of a 10p piece slowly move around and um, do a kind of dance uh, around each other. Edmund, could you talk me through what we're looking at here? So what we're, we're doing with our swarm of robots here is a collective decision-making task. Uh, so if we want to put a, a swarm of robots out in the world to, for example, respond to a disaster, they need to make decisions about where to move and where to focus on first. And what we've done here is we've set them off with opinions. So they're red lights for the red preference, blue lights for the blue preference. And what they will try to do is persuade their neighbours to switch to their point of view. They will broadcast blue, they will blue broadcast uh, red for a certain period of time, and then they will listen to what their neighbours are saying. And if the majority of their neighbours are saying the opposite colour to what they want, they will flip. They'll be sort of pushed by peer pressure to change their opinion. And by doing that, 
based on local interactions, we can actually get the whole swarm to converge on a certain opinion for blue or for red, and that could represent you know, an opinion about where to go first, for example, because it's important that they stick together as a group. It looks to me like blue has won out here. It has this time, they've all gone blue. Blue team wins. <laughs> so swarming um, is a term that we usually associate with the natural world. And if I'm right in thinking that you also have a background in biology, why would we want robots to swarm? The exciting thing about swarms is uh, they'll have certain capabilities or characteristics that you might not get in other kinds of multi-robot system. Uh, because it's not just the fact of having a lot of robots, it's about the way that they're working, uh, which is inspired by, by nature. So rather than having a central controller telling them all what to do at any one moment in time, a, a leader as it were, they are completely self-organized. So their behavior is determined purely based on local interactions with their neighbors. So it gives them these three, three characteristics, which are robustness, uh, flexibility and scalability. So if an individual robot breaks, uh, that's not actually a problem for the swarm. They can keep going because there's no one key individual in charge. So that makes them more robust. Uh, in terms of flexibility, they will respond to what's going on in their local environment. So if there's particular work to be done, wherever they are, they will respond to that first um, before reallocating dynamically uh, based on what the rest of the swarm is doing. Uh, and then scalable in the sense that because there's no central controller, you can do the same interaction rules, the same controller on the robot with 100 robots or 1,000 robots. There's no bottlenecks in terms of them having to communicate and receive instructions from a, a central controller. How can we apply this kind of technology to our everyday lives? So the great promise of this, this technology is where there's a really large environment. So you think out, outdoors, you've got to cover a vast area. You can't do that with one robot. So you, what you might want is to have thousands of robots. Uh, and so then swarms will come into their own, responding to things like disasters, you know, after an earthquake, going around looking for survivors. Or maybe you want to deploy a swarm of robots onto the ocean to go and collect up garbage like plastic or respond to an oil spill. And, uh, clear it up. Um, so it sounds like you come to this from a very social point of view, which I think is probably quite unusual when we think about new technology. We often jump to kind of the commercial application. Um, how is this going to enable new businesses to make money? When you're looking at these robots, do you, do you look at it through that kind of social lens and the good that they can bring to the world? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's really exciting the kind of things that we can do uh, to, to help preserve life, you know, thinking about sending swarms to respond to, to burning buildings, right? You might, you might need to map out where are the survivors inside the building so that the firefighters can get in there and find them, or not just human life, but, you know, animal life, protecting our natural environment, clearing up uh, pollution, or, or finding it before it, it causes any damage. It could be really powerful for that. It's a lovely feedback loop, isn't it, going from the natural world into uh, robotics and technology and back to the natural world again. Yeah. So um, that's the good, but I've also got to ask you about the bad. And can you foresee any unintended consequences uh, that these robots might, might end up doing harm rather than those positive things? Well, I think for one example could be if you're, if you're deploying a really large number of robots into the environment, 
you know, you've got to ask the question, well, what happens if they do get lost or they do fail? You could end up littering the environment with, uh, with robots, uh, which become a source of waste themselves. So there are people at the Bristol Robotics Lab looking at biodegradable robots, for example. Um, so there wouldn't necessarily be a problem if it, if it got stuck, because it would just disintegrate naturally and safely. And a big question to end on, what's your big dream or vision for Swarm Robotics? What sort of impact would you like it to have had in 100 years' time? I think for me, it comes back to these, these sort of pro-social applications where we're really looking after our environment, helping to preserve human life and animal life as well by, by deploying large numbers of robots into the environment to sort of safely create a sensor network that, that tells us what's going on, that lets us know if there are any problems and allows us to fix any problems that, that might emerge. Because, you know, we know that there are big challenges around climate change, around growing populations. Uh, we, we really have to look after our environment and I think Swarm Technology will help us to do that. B. Carol Burks talking to Dr. Edmund Hunt at the Bristol Robotics Laboratory. But from a swarm of robots there to RB here. Wow, you get to go to some really fascinating places. That sounded amazing. How long is it going to be until we see swarm of robots in our everyday life? I think we'll probably see some form of swarm robotics in the next five years. They've got so much potential, like Edmund said, from checking that bridges are structurally sound to surveying disaster relief zones. We'll probably see them working in water or in the air before we see them on land, just simply because there are fewer obstacles. Um, so perhaps an early use might be something like monitoring crop conditions or spraying targeted herbicides. And what do they look like? If we're going to start seeing them in five years, people had better get an idea of what it is they might encounter underwater or in a crop field. Well, thankfully, they're surprisingly cute, actually. The team at Bristol build them themselves, and they're about the size of a 10p piece with three legs and a little curved antenna, a bit like a tiny dodgem car. That sounds amazing. Um, and just between you and me, did you put one in your bag? Have you got one I to take home? I was tempted. I was tempted. They're programmed to mimic natural swarm behaviour. So when you look at them, it's like watching ants or bees. I think we normally think of robots as being these big, monolithic, slightly threatening things. But these were, couldn't have been further from that. They were really cute. They sound amazing. Everyone will want one for Christmas. It'll be the in thing. Also with us is uh, Sumit Paul Chowdhury, who is the former editor-in-chief of New Scientist and now runs a consultancy called Alternity. B, Shumit, uh, the reason that we've been hearing about robot swarms is because the project was the winner of Nesta's Tipping Point Prize. Shumit, you were on the judging panel. Can you tell us a bit more about the awards? Well, what we were trying to look for was examples of technologies that we thought were really poised to make a big difference in the world, um, and for good generally, although we did ask about drawbacks as well. Because, you know, if you think about what we hear about technology at the moment, we either hear about very kind of futuristic visions of what's going on, or we hear a lot about digital stuff, actually. I mean, almost to the extent that it kind of dominates the conversation about the technologies that are going to shape, you know, tomorrow's world, essentially. So we were looking for things that were kind of just about to break through, but people wouldn't necessarily have heard about yet, or have heard much about. We heard why these little robots are so amazing, but can you tell us why the entry stood out for you and the rest of the panel? Um, there was no one thing for it, really, but um, it was in, Edmund's essay was, um, was very good on 
kind of giving us the whole picture of how this might work. It was very convincing that, uh, that this was a technology whose time really had come because he kind of covered everything as he got a flavour from, from that conversation, from what you could do with these robots to what the broader ramifications of them would be in the environment and so on. Um, so it really kind of gave us a, a good picture of how you could start to imagine them being introduced into the real world. And what were the other entries that made it into the finals? Because that was obviously the winning one, but then there were certain runner-up to entries as well, weren't there? Yeah, we had two runners-up. One of them was about bioelectricity by Sally Addy, um, and that's kind of a really interesting field. It's um, a field with a long history, uh, the idea that our bodies, you know, we know that they're mechanical, you know, you break legs or whatever and they need to be fixed. We know that they're chemical, um, and we know that they're genetic, which is also chemistry, really. What we haven't appreciated until recently is that they're also electrical. There's a lot of electrical communication that goes on at the cellular level, and we're only starting to understand what that that means um, and what its potential might be for medicine, for example. The other piece um, that made the, um, the runner-up position was by Anna Porchewski, um, which was about smart materials, smart structures. And this is the idea that you can build things that will evolve over time. Um, and the example she gave was of a, of a flat pack wardrobe where you open the package and it assembles itself. And then when you're done with it, it disassembles itself, which is still a little bit futuristic. But nonetheless, you can see why that appeals as an idea. And we are getting there. I mean, that sounds amazing. As someone that's moved house in the last few months, I could have exactly done with that <laughs> flat pack furniture that made itself. And I love the sound of robot swarms as well and would very much like my own at home. But there must be a downside to all of this, um, apart from maybe needing really heavy-duty fly swatters. B, Dr Hunt talked about the unintended consequences of his work. How can we make sure that the technology of the future doesn't make life worse? Well, with all new tech, I think we need to get better at two things. Firstly, putting the proper time in to think realistically and critically about the unintended consequences of things. And secondly, making sure that people who will use or be affected by the tech are involved in the build and design of it. I think about when radium, the radioactive agent, was first discovered. It was applied all over the place, including being used to paint luminous watches and clocks, right? They glowed, so it was a really appealing... Um, thing to use but of course people died and asbestos uh, might be a more recent example of that that kind of thing probably won't happen again because we've got good at thinking about the long-term health impacts of technology but what we haven't learned to think about are the long-term social impacts and I want to see more of that. So Shimit, you work with new ideas all the time how much are factors like unintended consequences considered when people are coming up with proposals for things? Um, it does depend on the field a lot. I mean, so um, so as B says, I mean, in, in biology or in health, uh, you know, when it comes to using new materials in consumer products, we've got pretty good systems for doing that. We've got pretty good systems for considering pharmaceuticals, so we don't kind of just let new drugs enter the market without doing an awful lot of testing, some argue too much testing, before they're allowed to be used for on real patients. But when it comes to things like digital technology... I think we've sort of gone from having this rosy view that, um, that it can only be used for good. And you know, everyone's really excited about its potential. And no one's kind of sat down and thought, well, actually, not necessarily. And in particular, I mean, there's the unintended consequences. But there's also intended consequences from people who don't think like us. You know, we might think of them as the baddies. But they are people who have their own points of view and their own ways to use things, which don't necessarily accord with what we want. And you can't say that that technology is not going to be used by those people as they want to use it. So there could be people out there that want to use a robot swarm to take over the world and we just don't know yet. Yeah, there could be. <laughs> well, now we've heard, obviously, uh, B, you mentioned earlier about how glow-in-the-dark things ended up not being quite so fun. Are there any other examples of unintended consequences that have already happened from, from recent technologies that you could tell us about? Nesta does a round of predictions every year, um, and the winning prediction this year was um, was that a deep fake, which is the kind of popular term for an AI-synthesised video that mimics a real person, and that one of those would be used to cause a geopolitical incident. That was the prediction. And that actually hasn't really happened yet. 
But um, what I think is interesting about it is just the knowledge that deepfakes exist been enough to kind of start sowing doubt about what you can trust um, when it comes to what you see and what you hear. And we're sort of starting to get reports, none of them very substantial, but, you know, people are starting to say, well, that might be a fake. Um, Donald Trump, who is, you know, no friend of, you know, objective truth, has already kind of started to cast doubts about the famous recording of him talking about women. I mean, so he's kind of suggested, maybe that wasn't me. We don't know whether they was talking about deep fakes or not, but it's not going to be long before people start using that. Um, so the technology doesn't even have to be used for it to have an effect. And that's the kind of consequence that we're really not thinking through in advance at the moment. Sure. I mean, on the plus side, I could have just not been here today and had a deep fake do all of this instead. Indeed. Very exciting. B, what kind of stuff keeps you awake at night when it comes to the downsides of some of the ideas that you deal with? Well, I'm normally awake because I'm excited about things. But when it comes to what I worry about, I think it always comes back to who is building this stuff and how much unconscious bias are we hard coding into the technology of the future. If you think about it, most virtual assistants have female names. What does that say about the way that we value women? Wikipedia, an amazing resource, one of the great innovations of the Internet Commons. But most people contributing to Wikipedia identify as male. And so that means men are literally writing history again. Uh, so we need to build the paths and mechanisms into technological research and design to make sure that diverse views, experiences, but also ideals, good diverse ambitions are represented. Shumit. How do we protect ourselves against this sort of thing? Um, do you think scientists need a version of the Hippocratic Oath? Or is there a way that we need to, you know, that we should be looking at stopping other people getting control of these things? Well, there's a lot of talk at the moment about codes of conduct, particularly in things like AI. Um, and I think those are, you know, well-intentioned and necessary, but I don't think they're sufficient. And partly because what I said before, I mean, there are always going to be people who, who either don't want to um, play by the rules. I mean, you know, fake news is not a problem because people genuinely think that what they're putting out is, you know, for the better good. It's for a reason, and it's for a weaponized reason. And there'll be people who simply disagree about what constitutes a valid use of the technology. So yeah, you could have a code of conduct, but actually I think um, it's really you know, a hand-waving answer. But you need more social discussion, and you need more, kind of, you need more involvement from everyone who's going to be affected by technology at an earlier stage of its development. You know, the process we have right now, where something is developed and then commercialized very quickly and deployed at scale very quickly, um, you know, it has its benefits, but it also has its downsides. So it shouldn't necessarily be the responsibility of the people inventing these things to work out how they might be used. I think they have a responsibility to ask other people what they think about the technology. Um, I don't think it's that they should stop developing it. I don't think it's that they should stop kind of trying to work out what they could do with it. But I do think there needs to be a bit of pause for thought about, well, before I give this to the world, maybe I should talk to some other people about what they might do with it or what they think about it. So going back to the robot swarms, on a very practical level, what might society have to do to adapt if this technology becomes commonplace? If we end up with robot swarms everywhere, how are we going to deal with it? Well, we'll probably see them in places that humans can't go before we see them in, in places that humans can go. So I'm thinking about stuff like cleaning sewers or cleaning the bottom of the seabed, uh, maybe visiting new planets and scaling the surface there. If you could imagine a swarm of robots coming down the street and cleaning the street or something, and what I'm interested in is how we might react to them as much as what they might do for us. So will, will you look at them and want to kind of squash one like you might a kind of spider or something? Or will you actually think they're quite entertaining and quite cute and try and chase them like a flock of birds? Or even try and take one home? Good question. Yeah, I've already got fears about how my 18-month-old daughter might uh, just destroy a whole swarm of robots for fun on a sunny afternoon. Shumit, uh, how is society going to need to change to adapt to all these inventions that humans 
might come up with in the 2020s? Um, I think it's, I mean, just to follow on a bit from that, actually, I think it's about imagination, really. I think uh, we've become, as, and this is probably about, you know, the Western Anglophone society, but um, we've become really kind of wedded to certain views of how the future is going to sh- un- unfold. And, you know, not necessarily for the better. I mean, you can sort of see the descent of what our future might look like out there all over the place at the moment. So I think we need to kind of get better at imagining the future and imagining possible futures, you know, the ways that things might be different and which of those futures we would want. Because technology, you know, has always made us think more about who we are and what we do and what we want. And we need to think about it in more ways than we are at the moment. Brilliant. Thank you both so much for joining us today. I am off to fit some very heavy duty windscreen wipers to my car. Before we go, we thought you might like to hear a snippet from one of our Nesta Talks 2 events. It's called How to Grow a Human. Here's Philip Ball. These aren't just any old neurons. These are my neurons. And you might wonder how I'm sitting here, in that case, talking to you, if this is a bit of my brain under the microscope. Well, it's, it's not actually a bit of my brain, or rather it's a, sort of a bit of my second brain, because these neurons were made from a piece of my arm. About two years ago, um, I had a little bit of skin extracted and turned into these. That was the start of my journey into what I think is one of the most extraordinary developments in certainly in the life sciences, maybe across the board in, the, in, in recent years. And it's one that could actually transform my lifetime, could prolong my lifetime, or if, at least if not mine, then certainly of some of you here, younger than me. Because in a nutshell, what this discovery boiled down to is that our cells, our, our flesh, our tissues, are much more versatile and plastic, if you like, than we thought they were. And to take that notion to its ultimate conclusion, what this discovery is really telling us is that probably every fragment of your and my flesh holds within it the potential to become another entire organism, another person. And whether or not that's another you or not, maybe it's something we'll, we'll talk about. You can reprogram cells to become stem cells and then induce them in other ways, perhaps by injecting other genes or by other means, you can induce them to become particular tissue types. So you can make them become liver cells or kidney cells, and then you can culture them to go on growing into a mass of kidney cells or into a mass of neurons, of brain cells. Now, the interesting thing about this is that Once they start to do that, they don't just grow into a sort of random mass of these different tissue types. The cells know how to start making those particular organs. They start to organize themselves. And this is what happened when my skin cells were turned into neurons. They just began as neurons in a dish, but as they grew, as the colony of neurons grew, it started to organize itself into something looking like a brain. Now, In principle, as I say, it's possible to grow all sorts of organs. So as well as brain organoids, people have grown pancreatic organoids or, you know, mini livers or mini kidneys or mini guts. And the exciting thing about this is that you can imagine using them for organ transplants. So you could could take a patient's um, skin cells like mine, grow them into a liver and transplant it back. And if you do that, then you don't have any of the problems of immune rejection that usually accompanies those sorts of transplants. You can hear the full talk on the Nesta website and we'll put a link in the show notes too. 
Nesta has lots of great talks and events going on so you can hear the brightest minds and have a fun evening out. The next event is called How to Free Our Brains from Sexism with Gina Rippon and is happening on the 9th of November at Nesta HQ in London. Get your ticket for just £3, which includes a drink using promo code CURIOUS. To find out what's going on and get your tickets for the next Nesta event, head to nesta.org.uk forward slash event. And that's all from me this week. I'm off to tour a new show with my robot drone swarm. They say there's a real buzz about it. (laughs) Future Curious will be back next week, bringing bold ideas to life and straight into your ears. Bye for now. 